0: What we try in courts in the United States is not the standard of care, it's the standard of
1: caring.
2: The role of an MLP is to support, not replace the physician.
1: Who is responsible for this patient?
3: If you don't settle this case, you're going to get burned to the ground. I think we're asking the wrong set of questions.
2: It doesn't matter if you don't know it or not, you're responsible for knowing it by law.
4: We've chosen to break our own rules.
0: Something bad happened here.
4: You can't order a CT on somebody and not have a physician see these people. That's utterly ridiculous.
1: What happened to this person? Why don't we just take it down and put it in our
0: mouth and blow our brains out?
4: Welcome, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry on the line here. We're doing a big Skype production this month. This is very special. Greg, you just got back from Israel a couple of days ago, I believe.
0: Yes, I did. And believe me, we have lots of listeners over in the Holy Land. Well, actually, they call it the promised land. The problem is they can't decide who it's been promised to. But uh, they're having a great time over there. They listen to all our stuff. They like it. And as you might imagine, they got plenty of lawyers in Israel too. So they got problems like everybody else. And when they're unhappy, they know how to settle problems over there. It's unbelievable. I was actually at the place seven days ago where a bomb blew up three days later so you never quite know what's gonna happen over there it is an interesting place
4: I bet you when you landed you kissed the ground I can assure you of your fondness of the United States of America
0: (laughs) you know it may be a pile of crap in some ways and who can trust the government but we have two oceans which separate us from most of our enemies and friends and the Israelis have none of that I mean literally when you're in the northern area and by the way the wine of the month is going to be a Golan Heights wine. In any event, you're actually listening to
4: gunfire
0: in either Syria <laughs> or Lebanon. It's unbelievable.
4: Well, let's get into this special issue. We have Mike Weinstock on the line. Mike is the founder and editor of Bounce Backs, which is a book that talks about people coming back to the emergency department unscheduled. I kind of assume that that's the genesis of that book, Mike, and I hear it's done very, very well, even though Greg is a contributor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) was the glue that held that book together?
4: We've got five people on Skype right now, and we're doing a video. This is truly unbelievable. Mike, why don't you introduce our guest? Uh, your guests, our guests, and then we're going to get into a case that you have prepared for us.
1: Well, I'd be happy to do that and totally honored to have him here. Just as a little context is that what we're going to be talking about today is who takes ultimate responsibility for a patient when that patient is being cared for by a physician and a mid-level provider, and we have two guests here. One is Jennifer Stankes, she is a MD, JD, and we'll find out a little bit more about her as we go through things. And I think she's going to be able to give us some unique insights on the legal aspects of things. And then we also have a real live physician assistant, John Rockwood. He's a coworker of mine, and he's been doing this for 20 years, and he's great at it. And I think he'll have some interesting perspectives for us.
0: Well, you know, before we get going on this, let me just say that the last two months, half the cases I've gotten in to look at medically, legally, have had the problem with another provider who is supposedly being supervised by the emergency physician. The question of mid-level providers is not going down in med-legal situations. It's going up. And anybody listening to this recording who thinks this is a problem that's not coming to your department soon, you're just wrong.
4: Well, Mike, you sent us a paper that was done by Mike Manchin that was published in the Academic Emergency Medicine in October. Mike Manchin is on faculty at USC and actually was taught at the Los Angeles version of the EMA courses about two weeks ago. What they did is a survey of before and after in terms of the increasing usage of mid-level providers. And the point was, that it is sharply increased. They did in 1997, they said 5.2 million patients, which was 5.5% of all ED cases was seen by a mid-level, which bumped up to 12.7. One out of eight ED cases is now seen by a mid-level. The percentage of emergency departments that use mid-levels went from 28% in 1997 to 77%. And this is a 2006 paper, and we're five years beyond that, and I'm sure the numbers are substantially higher than that.
0: Rick, I think it's more than doubled. The other thing is, if you look at that paper, it's from USC, which by definition would not be using as many third, uh, mid-levels simply because they have slave labor called residents. Yeah. So if you look at a general hospital in the United States, 32,000 visits, I'm willing to bet that those numbers are way low as to what's going on right now.
1: So I have to bust in here. I wasn't actually involved in this uh, month's risk management monthly, but I've got to call a Greg, you ignorant slut. 40%, 40% of the patient interactions that occur at USC at this point are by mid-level providers. Although we have a big residency, the biggest in the country, 68 residents, I think it is, 40% of the patient interactions are now through mid-levels, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So even at USC, which is this big training center, which has this cheap group of people to do all the work, still uses a huge percent of mid-level providers. So, Greg, don't be an ignorant slut.
4: Well, that could be, but this has been a recurring theme. Over the last four years that we've done Risk Management Monthly, this issue comes up over and over and over and over, and and still our letters. In fact, we have some letters today that talk about this issue. But let's get into the case.
1: Just some context to this is that this case, I think, will be interesting in and of itself, but it's also going to be a framework to bring up some different discussion questions as far as ultimate responsibility and some of the real medical legal risk issues when a physician is seeing a patient with a mid-level provider. So I'm going to start with the patient story. We're going to move on to the doctor's version, and then we'll bring in some of the deposition testimony. And finally, at the very end, I'm going to ask everyone to vote on whether this case settled or whether the Plaintiff and defense attorney together decided that they couldn't settle and they needed to bring it to trial. So we'll, we'll leave a little bit hanging out there for the end, little question. Here's the patient's story. Crystal has not had it easy. At the age of six, her father moves her to Louisiana. She's only to see her mother again briefly. Becoming pregnant in the 12th grade, she drops out of school, moves in with the soon-to-be father. Her pregnancy is complicated by anemia so severe she requires a blood transfusion, but eventually delivers a healthy daughter by C-section. Times remain tough. She has a 60-minute community way to work. She's forced to quit her job when her car breaks down. In 2002, her children go to live with their father. She's soon pregnant again from a one-night stand and it's during this pregnancy that she learns of her mother's sudden death. She has an onset of depression and she's admitted to a psychiatric ward for almost 10 days. Third C-section results in a healthy baby girl, 2003. Crystal, Calls her joy. In 2004, she stopped for a traffic violation and the police noticed that her child is not in the car seat. She's cited. She doesn't show up for the court date and her driver's license is revoked. She now receives government assistance with food stamps and is placed on Medicaid. With no way to get to work and a young child to care for, she moves into a shelter. On Tuesday, Crystal's at the shelter, reaches for her daughter's car seat to put her into the daycare van. Crystal has a sudden onset of a hand cramp, then falls to the floor and can't get up for three minutes. She said, I was standing and just fell. She calls out for help and finds she then is able to walk. There's no head trauma. She's driven to the ED. So this is the doctor's version, Tuesday, May 10th at 9.58 in the morning. Her vital signs are normal. Pulse ox is 100%. She's triaged as acuity level three, which is green. The documentation at 11.17 a.m. is by the physician assistant. And this is the exact documentation of the history. And I'll summarize the rest of the chart. Right leg and arm numbness last night and today with a fall times two. Denies previous or current injury. Severity, mild to moderate. Weakness, right upper extremity and right lower extremity, which is new. Numbness times two episodes, approximately one minute each. No problems with vision, impaired speech, difficulty swallowing or confusion. She has a half a prescription for scepter remaining, but hasn't taken it because it makes me sick. Patient reports, prior hemoglobin of 6.7 and says she's taking iron. The rest of the documentation the past medical history is from anemia. She's a smoker, two packs per day, and says she does not drink and does not use drugs. On physical exam, her heart is regular rate and rhythm without murmurs. Her respiratory exam is normal. Abdomen is soft and non-tender. A neuro exam is documented. Cranial nerves normal is tested. Extraocular muscles intact. Pupils equally round and reactive to light. Cerebellar, normal as tested. No motor or sensory deficit reflex is normal. She is given orthostatic vital signs, which are normal. She's given a Tylenol, but she refuses this because she said she'd already tried it. At 1257, she asked for her IV to be removed, and they had her sign an AMA form saying that she's refusing this type of therapy. She had some testing, white blood cell count 8.8, hemoglobin 7.8, platelet count 1.2 million. The rest of the labs, including a pregnancy test and glucose, are normal. Cat scan of the head is normal, interpreted by the radiologist, and a urine tox screen is positive for marijuana. Diagnosis, sinusitis, substance abuse, paresthesias, and anemia. She's given a prescription for doxycycline for the sinusitis from motion, and asked to follow up with her primary care doctor as soon as possible. So what I wanted to do with this information we have from the initial visit is first ask Rick and then Greg, couple comments on this workup and this evaluation. Rick, standard of care?
4: I <laughs> don't think so. No, I think there's a certain prejudice, basically, when you see people, whether it's positive or negative prejudice. But I think this lady got shined on because she had a lot of other things going that kind of distracted them from the really the core of why she was there. No, I don't feel comfortable with this evaluation at all.
0: Why don't we just take a gun and put it in our mouth and blow our brains out? I mean, this <laughs> is crazy. What happened in this case is what happens all the time. The reason we're talking about it, Mike, is because something bad happened here. But this is the kind of case that comes into emergency departments every single day. And I don't care what kind of human being you are. You carry with you internal prejudices. The most important thing I ever learned to do was step in the hall and say, Greg, I'm not going to let the following 28 factors, all of which make me mad, interfere with the evaluation of this case and I think you ought to break it down to what is the complaint the complaint and it says half her body's numb and she fell over to me I'm just a simple country boy but that sounds neurologic to me and that's all I can say what you have to do is put aside the fact that she's young she's depressed she's got a horrible life she's got all these other things you know what She's not asking you to solve her horrible life problems. She's asking to solve something else. Number two, against medical advice is not a form or a piece of paper. We've talked about that on this show ten times. It's a process, and I'm willing to bet they did not go through the five-point legal process to decide whether this is truly against medical advice.
4: Well, they probably didn't want her to stay. This was a complex case, and there was a lot of psychosocial overlay, and they were probably just thrilled for her to leave. And
0: I think that when you're young and when you're a resident, against medical advice is great news. Yay! One more person out of here I don't have to take care of. When you're an attending, I think against medical advice is something you better think about very hard because I've looked at a lot of against medical advice cases in my career, and they all had something in there where the communication fell apart.
1: You can just feel the conflict in this evaluation. This lady doesn't want her IV in because it hurts well, what do you need an IV for anyway with this presentation? She refuses her Tylenol, which sounds like it sort of pisses them off a little bit. And then in the end, they do a drug test on her and find that she is positive for marijuana, so they diagnose her with substance abuse. Like somehow she would have a one minute of weakness on her side because she'd smoke some marijuana. It's marijuana-induced
0: hemi-anesthesia. It's, it's a not common reported. condition. And <laughs> we don't write about it much, but the other thing is, she also carries with her this idea of noncompliance. She's not taking her Ceptra, which means she's not listening to the doctors. You know, a lot of people don't listen to the doctors. I don't listen to the doctors. That's not what the deal is all about. And she came in, I think, with a buried set of symptoms which are covered by everything else here.
1: Well, I want to try to focus on some of the. Medical legal risk issues here, but I want to just bring in one quick question, Rick. How reassuring is a normal CAT scan to you with transient neurologic symptoms?
4: It's not reassuring at all. The only reason people do those is looking for blood for subarachnoid hemorrhages. Not going to be finding like a brain tumor kind of thing. So this sounds like a little ischemic episode. And I think one of the things that Greg mentioned is I think really important. We need to stratify. The real problems when somebody comes in. And the real problem was something that was pretty scary and unique. And this other stuff about the anemia and urine and not taking this and that, they were all just kind of like distractors from the real problem. And I think that when you listen to the diagnoses, paresthesia is not a diagnosis, it's a restatement of the problem. And where did they come up with sinusitis? I mean, was that on a CAT scan or something like that?
0: I feel sorry for the sinuses, Rick. We ought to start a club that says there's an anti-sinus program in this country. They've been blamed for more damn things. I don't think that the usual irritation of the sinuses causes much of anything.
4: We're willing to write it off. Well, I agree. The sinuses do take a bad rap. So do spiders. Spider bite. Everything's a spider bite. They need a better representative.
1: Let me go ahead and summarize some of the risk management issues with this first visit. I think pretty poor history of present illness. After reading it, I'm still not exactly sure what happened to this person? Was the numbness on the same side as the weakness? Is the weakness completely resolved? Has it ever happened before? There's some outstanding issues there. Risk factors were not really evaluated. If they did a CAT scan, they're probably looking for something, well, obviously looking for something in the brain, whether it was a stroke or a TAA or a mass. Well, are there some risk factors that would lead a 26-year-old person some crazy risk factors that we could see some type of condition that would lead her to be more likely to have one of those events. CT scan of the head
0: is not a medical decision. It's a brainstem reflex on the part of the doctor because if it had anything to do with anything, they check that box. I'm an anti-CT scan guy. There's no question about it. I think that most people are given a false sense of security by a negative CT scan. It means nothing in this case.
1: I think if you're about to be reassured by a negative CAT scan on your patient, you got to scan your own brain. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> this isn't is right. By the way, you didn't mention in here, did the doctor see this person originally? Did the PA see this person originally? What actually happened here,
1: Mike? Oh, Greg, 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 we will get to that.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Number three, not asking for help. Okay. Um, this is a partnership, obviously, between an MLP and physician, just like a physician oftentimes has to ask for help from specialists. And in the same way, This teamwork needs to occur in conjunction with each other. There's a contradiction in the chart as far as issue number four. The indication for the CAT scan is put on the requisition form as head pain, but this isn't really discussed in the history of present illness. Did she have head pain at the time? Was it a sudden onset? Those are important issues. Number five, we talked about over-reliance on the brain scan being negative. And then finally, not recognizing a potential danger of thrombocytosis. If you can order a test... You got to be prepared to deal with the results. This patient had two abnormalities in her CBC, hemoglobin of 7.8 and a platelet count of 1.2 million. So let's go ahead and I'm going to present the bounce back and the story of what happened. Patient was discharged with those diagnoses we discussed. At 4 a.m. the following morning on Wednesday, May 11th, Crystal wakes and goes to the bathroom. She says, quote, I just start falling. She gets back to sleep and then her routine is awoken by the church at 6 o'clock in the morning. Because that's the time. It's time to get her daughter off to daycare. She gets the daughter off and then is driven down to the Rocky Fork Department of Social Services building. While waiting (laughs) to be seen, she experiences, quote, sweat pouring down my face. I can't see nothing. Slurry speech and a real bad headache. The medics are called. 918, EMS is dispatched. Reason for dispatch, breathing problems. 928, they arrive on the scene. 931, vital signs are taken. They're normal. Her Glasgow coma scale is normal. She has a primary complaint at that point of headache. At 10, 11 in the morning, she arrives back at the same emergency department. Quote 26 year old female complaint headache with burning sensation across her nose. She was seen here yesterday and treated for sinusitis. Patient requests transport to ED for evaluation again today. She is transported without incident to the lead charge nurse and then to triage. So the patient arrives by EMS. She's taken a triage at 1028 in the morning. Quote is written in the chart. Patient here via EMS with complaint of headaches. State seen here yesterday, diagnosed with sinusitis and given a prescription, but is unable to get it filled. Alert and oriented times three. 1052 in the morning. One episode of Emesis comes back to the triage desk says, I feel sick, not answering detailed questions. Patient was returned to the waiting room. 1146 a.m comes back to the triage desk, says, I feel really sick. Documentation by the nurse, respiration's easy, skin warm and dry, no more episodes of vomiting, patient stable, return to the waiting room. 158 in the afternoon, the patient's name is called, three hours and 23 minutes after arriving by a squad. She is again seen by a physician assistant, at that point complaint of syncope, headache, aphasia, and right side of paralysis. Her mental status is that she's slow to respond, minimal response to commands. She withdraws her right arm from deep pain, but only has a two out of five strength. A brain scan at that point shows acute CVA in the distribution of the left middle cerebral artery, diagnosis acute CVA. She is admitted to the hospital, has a neuro consult, and she has an impression. Quote, suspect stroke is secondary to the thrombocytosis and related hyperviscosity syndrome. In hospital testing reveals 90% left carotid artery stenosis and On May 19th, eight days after arriving in the hospital, she's discharged for outpatient rehab. And her story, she now, in 2010, at any rate, lives with her seven-year-old daughter, Joy. With rehab, her condition has improved, and she's able to walk only to the bus stop across the street, but cannot walk as far as the park. Her speech isn't clear. Her thought processes haven't returned to baseline. She's embarrassed to be seen, so she and her daughter spend most of the time in the house. A nurse's aide visits the house for several hours, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, to help with basic activities of living. She has a deposition, and at that point, she states that she hasn't seen her first two daughters in almost a year. She tried to call at Christmas, but the phone was not in service and hasn't been connected. So we're going to move on to the legal process here, and I think we'll find this interesting. At deposition, there was a deposition of the patient as well as the physician assistant and the attending at the time. What I'm going to do is go through and just briefly read some of the deposition testimony, and then we're going to use that as a seg towards some of the discussion points that we'll have with this. So let me go ahead and start with the physician assistant's deposition testimony. Question by the plaintiff lawyer. Was there always during your tenure at Cape Hope an emergency physician in the ED? Yes, sir. And do I understand that always you would discuss the care and disposition of the patient with the physician before discharge? Every case. As it pertains to Crystal Johnson, who did you discuss her case with? Dr. Jones. Why did you do that? That's what I do. It's the requirement that I have with the supervising physicians. I discuss every patient with them. They are in charge, and therefore, I discuss all patients with them. So what do we think the physician had to say about that? Yeah, the physician says, to the best of my recollection, sir, I don't remember. Scott Davidson, the physician assistant, speaking to me about Ms. Johnson. If he did, I don't remember what he said. Were you in charge of her care? Well, I was the backup physician for the physician assistant, but to the best of my recollection, he never discussed the care of the patient with me. Question, so that I can make sure your answer is clear, I understand that the answer to my question to be, no, you're not in charge of her care while she was in the ED on April 10th. Is that correct? Answer, I was the backup physician, sir. And I think to the best of my recollection, Scott Davidson never discussed with me Ms. Johnson. If he did, I don't remember. Just an
0: interjection here. Chicken yes. shit, chicken shit, chicken shit. Man up. <laughs> if you signed the damn chart and they use your number to bill, you know what? I'd shove that up their nose
1: at trial. Go ahead. Well, that was my question to you, is who is responsible for this patient? And so well, let me have your thoughts. And then I'd like to bring Jen in and ask her the same question. Who's responsible for this patient?
0: I just wrote an editorial on this for Emergency Physician Monthly in the O. Henry column, That if we don't decide as emergency docs what everybody's role is, somebody else will do that definition for us. And what makes you think that if we've now decided we're not in charge of anything or responsible for anything, why do we need us at all? This is a very serious question I'm raising, which is I think physician assistants are exactly that. I don't use the term physician extenders anymore because that sounds like something I should be buying in an adult bookstore, but I think that we need to talk about the question of who's responsible for what, and in this case, I bet if I look at that chart, there's a doctor's signature, and if I look at the billing slip, there is a provider number which belongs to that physician to me, that means you took responsibility for the care.
1: What are your thoughts, Jen?
2: I agree with Dr. Henry that the role of an MLP is to support, not replace the physician. And unfortunately, only about half of the MLP, according to the article we discussed earlier, only about half of the patients seen by an MLP are also seen by or reviewed by a physician. In this case, I don't know what the policy at the hospital was, but the MLP said that every case was discussed with a physician. Once that case is discussed with a physician and that physician signs the chart, they're responsible for the patient and knowing what's on that chart and what's going on with the patient.
1: Well, John Rockwood, we introduced him earlier as a physician assistant, and we've talked in the last couple of weeks about how difficult being a physician assistant can be because you're not only trying to take best care of the patient but anticipate what the evaluation would be from the physician that you're working with. So you might take very different care of the exact same patient depending which physician that you're working with that day. Give us a couple of thoughts of your experience in that as well as in the context of this case how you try to walk that fine line of taking good care of a patient and anticipate a physician's requirements.
3: Typically I try to keep my practice pretty consistent even though I work with different physicians. Unless it's an urgent care type patient, I almost always will run the case by the physician. If I do lab work, if I do imaging, I always discuss it with them just because I'm a pretty conservative provider. I do change my practice from time to time depending on the physician. If I think they're inexperienced, I may tend to do a little bit more lab work or a little bit more imaging before I discuss the case. But in this particular case, With abnormal lab work, I always would sit down and have a discussion with them and I'm a little bit surprised that this got missed.
1: Well, it didn't really seem that the physician assistant on their diagnosis list, they mentioned the anemia but didn't mention the elevated platelet count. What is your thought on ordering this test? Do you think the physician assistant recognized that the platelet count was abnormal or they got to the hemoglobin and focused in on that and then just moved on?
3: Well, I suspect that either they didn't look at it. You know, when you order lab tests, you have to review everything. And I suspect they either didn't look at it or dismissed it without really understanding the significance of it in the setting of this patient. I think that in this case, any abnormal lab work would have been discussed with my physician and I would want and this is something that Michael taught me I would want a note on the chart explaining the reason this patient was discharged if they were and explaining a clear explanation of why the lab work was abnormal and what we were going to do about it. Certainly I don't think this patient would have been discharged had I discussed this with Mike. I think we would have had a long discussion about what we're going to do with this patient, and they likely would have been admitted. In fact, I had a patient not dissimilar to this not long ago, and although there was no abnormal lab work, there was a long discussion about this and what we were going to do with the patient.
4: Isn't there a problem, though, when you talk to a doctor without the doctor seeing the patient, that you'll paint the case as you see it, and you'll emphasize the parts that you think need emphasis, which in fact may not be the parts that really do need emphasis, I know a group that has 600 providers, and their policy is the doctor sees every soul. And honestly, that's the policy that we had at our hospital. I think PAs and nurse practitioners would probably view that position as a little over the top and perhaps not acknowledging their skill sets adequately, but I think there's a risk. And the risk relates to having the provider describe the case as they see it rather than maybe as it is.
3: And I don't disagree with that. I think probably the important thing here is I generally ask my physicians to see these patients. If it's not a runny nose or a sore throat, I almost universally have them go in and see the patient. And the advantage is that they can ask some pointed questions, which rule out dangerous things, knowing that I've tried to give them as accurate a history as I can and seeing the lab work or whatever, imaging. And I always encourage my physicians to go and see patients. And part of it is you have to have the humility to not feel like asking for help is stepping down. I think you encourage your physicians to see your patients and knowing that having two sets of hands on them is a good thing. And the problem is that in the setting of the emergency department, the pace is so high, and the attitude of some physicians is that they want you to see the patient and get them out of there, and it's not encouraging you to come to them and say, I want you to go see this patient.
0: Emergency medicine is not the big ticket item in the health care bill. We're like 2 to 2.4% of the health care cost of the United States, and quite frankly, it's the best 2% the country ever got, but when you're seeing patients at a rate where you cannot spend one minute to go in and see them, why are you getting paid for it? I mean, I'm asking a serious question here, that if you're going to charge, in fact, I heard that question once in court when the doc says, well, I don't have time to see all these. The plaintiff's counsel said you had time to bill all these. Show me in these records where you gave them a discount because you were overwhelmed that day. Just go ahead and show me. And if you don't think the jury didn't like that, They did.
4: Mike, uh, one of the things I don't know that is clear yet in this case is, did the physician sign the chart?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That was just where we were going next. And I wanted to tell an interesting story. My friend Ryan Longstreth, who you all know, was telling the story. uh, We were talking about this case, and he said in his residency at the end of his shift, they'd give him a stack of 50 charts, and he'd just go through and sign everyone because that was the hospital policy. And that's similar to what happened here. Question. Given that your initials are on our chart, do you believe you signed off on our chart? Yes, sir. Is that your signature there, Dr. Jones? Yes, sir. All right. To your knowledge, does your signature appear, initials, anywhere else on the chart other than on this particular page? Yes, it's on the following page. Those two consecutive pages would be the ones with my signature. Hospital policy and regulation requires that before a patient is discharged, a physician must sign off on the chart, sir, and I think we follow that policy. So, Jim, let me ask you, you mentioned before, well, if they don't talk about the care, then maybe it's just the physician assistant that's responsible, because I think some of these cases, you see just a PA is sued, or just a doctor is sued without the PA that cared for the patient. So, we don't want to encourage people not to talk about a patient that should be discussed because there's a higher medical legal risk. So, where's the happy ground here? You have to sign the chart, so you obviously have some involvement with it, but... What should a physician do? Which patients should they see?
2: Well, first of all, not all hospitals require that every chart be signed. The requirements vary from state to state and from hospital to hospital. I think it's probably a prudent policy that physicians see and sign every chart, see every patient sign every chart. But it's not an absolute requirement. In fact, in California, the requirement is that only 5% of charts be signed and within 30 days. And so you may be signing off on a chart... After the patient's long gone. But I think that at the very least, it's incumbent upon the physician, if they're signing a chart that's going out, you need to look at the chart and critically evaluate what's been done. Why was the head CT done? What was it trying to rule out? Did it adequately do that? You know, all the things that came up in this case. I think that as a conservative provider who is in charge with the care of a patient in the ED, I think you ought to see every patient and sign every chart.
0: Jen, I want to get back to another point, though. If they say, well, all you need to have see the patient is the mid-level provider, who's getting paid for this? Under what auspices are we billing? If the mid-level provider is a hospital employee, does that send them up in direct opposition to the doctor, particularly if they have a group which is not a hospital employee. I mean, I think there are a lot of issues here which need to be looked at clearly. And what we're doing is we're playing form over substance. What do we want from healthcare? What do we want there to be? And then we've got all this little stuff about who bills, who charges, who this, who that. I think we're asking the wrong set of questions.
2: So one point to bring up is that not every supervising physician is getting paid for an MLP's work. Under the Medicare rules, an MLP can bill at 85% of what the physician bills.
0: Jen, nobody does that. Nobody wants the 85%. Right. They want the 100%. And, exactly. And if you looked at the number of 85% that are being billed in the country, you could have a meeting of all those people in a phone booth. <laughs> uh, the real question here is if you're billing 100%, What did you get from the doctor? I'm sorry that I'm beating this drum heavily, but I'll tell you what. I think if I was sitting in Washington, D.C., deciding who's going to get paid in a country that's going broke that is $14.5 trillion in debt, I think about cutting out doctors and just having PAs for a lot of things and paying them a lot less. we got to talk about what service is being given here, and if you don't, I think it's cowardly.
2: So I think that one thing that sort of stood out in this case and just thinking about MLPs versus emergency physicians is that when a person goes to the emergency department, they expect the same level of care regardless of who goes in to see them. And I think that they should expect that.
0: By virtue of supervision, we give the standard of care. I don't care whether I'm looking at a residence case or a mid-levels case, the standard of care is still That which the the reasonable physician would do under like or similar circumstances.
4: I agree. I have to go along with John there in that depending on who you're working with, and I know that this happened at our hospital, the PAs would say one doctor would basically allow them very free reign and wanted to have them see the patients independently, even though our policy was every soul would be seen by a physician. And so I think the PAs can get put into a very bad position in this regard especially on the slippery slope of, well, let the PA decide what patients will be seen. Well, if the doctor he's working with that day or she's working with that day is one of these doctors who's not particularly interested in being bothered, that kind of puts a tension in the relationship that really where the patient can suffer because the PA really feels uncomfortable asking the doctor because the doctor has made it clear that he wants the PA to see the patients. And so I think that there's some policy issues that really should be put in place. As an example, You can't order a CT on somebody and not have a physician see these people. That's utterly ridiculous. I think it should honestly be taken away from the decision of individual physicians because, frankly, a lot of individual physicians are lazy and they just see the PAs as people who can do their work for them. And I think that that's not right.
0: The problem of giving that discretion to someone about get help when you think you need it, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you've decided that they need some sort of serious workup, which I think a CT is, I mean, you're looking for something real. Why is this discretionary again? I just honestly don't understand it. And I don't think we're moving in the right direction for mid-level providers as to the kind of backup they need to get things done. If you talk to the mid-levels where I work for years, they'll say they always know what to do when certain doctors are on because some of us are anti-test doctors, some of us are absolute compulsive about examining the patient, and other people aren't. Rick's comment is right. There is no uniform standard in this country as to how
1: a patient is going to be seen. Rick's point is a very good one. We had a student who was at the top of my class in medical school at Ohio State, who in his residency, come April, decided that he really didn't need to keep checking out the patients, the resident, and he had a patient that went to the ICU and died because of preventable medical error, because he was an unbelievably great intern, but not up to the level of attending. And he thought he knew more than he did. And I think that's the scariest situation with the cowboys out there who feel that they know more than they do and don't ask for help. John actually, last night we spoke and brought up another interesting scenario with physician assistants, because usually the shift turnover doesn't coincide between MLPs and the physician. So John's taking care of a patient, the physician leaves, and then the lab tests and things return in an unanticipated manner. So now John has to figure out, am I going to speak with the next physician who doesn't feel an investment with that patient? And so John, I was going to ask what your thoughts are. That's, I think, another potentially dangerous situation when you have a turnover of the doctor who's caring for the patient initially.
3: Well, I think that in large part, a lot of how especially inexperienced mid-level providers practice is driven by the physician attitude. And so if I go from one physician to another, have what I expect to be a discharged patient with a forthcoming negative CAT scan or normal lab work, which we're waiting for. And then suddenly you find an unusual outcome or the patient's vital signs take a turn for the worse and it's something that we didn't anticipate. And then I try to go to the physician and say, hey, look, you know, I'm concerned about this. And they have little or no interest in engaging this patient because it's not someone they know and they didn't work them up and you're handing them trouble. They're not interested. And so I force the issue and that's because I've been doing it for a while and I'm just like, you have to go see this patient. But if you have somebody who's inexperienced or maybe not as determined, then they sit there hanging and they may make a decision to send this patient home when it's huge risk. And it's interesting, I spoke to a classmate of mine who works out in Seattle, and we have very disparate practices. Our group really encourages physician involvement, and in large part, our physicians see almost all of the patients. Out where he practices in Seattle, he literally said, not only do the physicians not want to see the patient, but they're really not interested in knowing anything about it." And what they're working on is trying to get patients in and out of the department. And he said, you know, one of the things is proximity. He said, I don't work near my physicians. And so it is a huge hassle to walk all the way across a 60-bed ER to find somebody, get them to interrupt what they're doing to come and see a patient when I have a question about it. Whereas my work with Michael, I literally work three feet away from him all day long.
1: I was going to talk to you about that, John.
3: Yeah, provided he's
1: bathed, (laughs) we're in good
3: shape. So it makes it very easy for me to engage him and ask questions, even if they're brief ones about, hey, here's my case, what kind of imaging, what kind of testing do you want?
1: Uh, I was going to say, there's two things that stand out in this article relevant to what John said. One is the one that Jen mentioned that only about half of patients seen by MLPs are seen by the staff physician nationally, according to the study. The second thing is that, the MLP's qualifications, and this is a quote from the article, are not as tightly regulated by board certification process specific to emergency medicine. And I think that some of the looking that I did in anticipation of this is that there are only, I think, five programs in the country to train MLPs specifically in emergency medicine. So once you get to John's point, you've been doing it for 20 years, you've got a lot of experience behind you. But new MLP grads, just out of the boxes... They don't have that think worse first mentality when they had our emergency messages, which is a very unique way to practice emergency medicine. I tell patients all the time I'm not looking for what you have, I'm looking for what you don't have. And then we'll backdoor ourselves into the first question later.
0: Yeah, by the way, two points there, Mike. We have other people who think they know and they don't, and those are the residents. I mean, a guy like John has seen patients for 20 years, the resident may have been there for two months. Whose judgment are you going to take at a certain moment in time? The other thing is, John, I just want to let you know that Mike has issued a restraining order on you, some sort of protective (laughs) order. If you work three feet from him again, you're in trouble. (laughs) You know, if if you have a 60-bed ER and you can't supply somebody to look at those cases, you better re-look at the way you're set up and ask some major questions here because I think – if you are sending a message as the attending that don't bother me, then whether you like it or not, you don't want to bother them and something's going to be missed. They have to feel they have a right to get back up, because that's what the system is set up to do.
4: Well, I like the idea that says the physician is responsible totally for the disposition and diagnosis of every soul in that department. And if you chose not to see the patient, it doesn't matter. You're still responsible. So if you've elected not to see an ankle sprain and the PA sees the ankle sprain, that's fine. You've made a decision. But don't delude yourself to think that you're not responsible for every case. One of the things that has come up is about, you know, 20 years ago, everybody was beating their chest about the necessity for residency-trained emergency physicians in all emergency departments, and they were going to get rid of general practitioners and family doctors who were moonlighting in emergency departments. And now we have become, I want to be a little bit charitable here, we've chosen to break our own rules. We bring in... You You don't want to
0: use the term green, is that right, Rick?
4: Well, we've broken our own rules. We've brought in people into the department who are not certified in anything, not any special credentials in anything, and we're allowing them to see patients independently and sending them out, when in fact, that was fundamentally against the idea of board-certified emergency physicians.
1: Well, that study had a survey, and the MLPs, fracture reduction, 68% of MLPs can do fracture reduction or perform that procedure. 52% perform lumbar punctures, 36% central line placement. And just a few months ago, Rick, when I was out in LA there, Mel took me on a tour of County Hospital and a patient had just had their chest cracked, clamshelled open, according to him, for a gunshot wound. And there was the healthcare provider wiping the blood off her shoes as we walked in the room was an MMLP, not a physician. So there are some very significant things that are being done by mid-level providers, and we need to, I think, be honest about that fact. Now, I wanted to bring a wrinkle into this case, (laughs) and I think this will be interesting, and and again, speaks to that ultimate responsibility. So, you remember our physician who said he didn't see the patient, doesn't remember discussing the patient? The attorney asks if he'd ever had any previous suits, and Greg, I know from your experience, they always ask that question. So,
4: he says,
1: here is his answer. He said, Well, there was a previous suit. The patient had chest pain for 24 hours. They were seen at the urgent care, sent to the ED. They were seen by the physician assistant. I discussed the patient's pain had been gone for 24 hours, and there was a claim after an adverse outcome that there was a delay in the care. I was named, as was the physician assistant. Question Did you ever see, physically see, that patient while the patient was in the ED? No, sir all right, sir, were you a backup supervising physician for the PA? Yes, sir. Did you sign off on the patient's chart? I discussed the care with the physician assistant from the beginning, so I was involved. And to the best of your knowledge, how is that different than the care involving this patient, Crystal Johnson? And he answers, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, I never did see Ms. Johnson. I don't remember physician assistant Scott Davidson speaking to me about Ms. Johnson. If he did, as I said, I don't remember. So, Jen, let's get back to this same issue. I think one of the messages here, one of the take-home messages is, as a physician, you are ultimately responsible for the care that's coming under your name. You sign the chart, you discuss the case. Obviously, some cases, as far as I'm concerned, don't need to be discussed, maybe don't need to be seen, but there are some cases that I think do need to be seen. Patients with diagnostic uncertainty, patients with potentially life-threatening problems, chest pain, abdominal pain patients that have a potential neurologic complaint which is confusing not just to mlps but confusing to emergency physicians everybody included these are some of the toughest things that we do What are some of your take-home points that you'd like to get across as far as who's ultimately responsible when two people are caring for a patient?
2: Well, several things. The first, to directly answer the question, is that the person with the highest level of training and experience and certainly someone who's supervising another provider is ultimately responsible. This second point I'd like to make is something that Rick had mentioned, and that's the framing effect. Depending on the level of experience, I mean, you have someone like John who's been practicing for 20 years and probably knows a whole lot more than I do as a physician even and certainly has more experience and seen more cases – He's probably going to frame something differently than someone who's just out of PA school and doesn't have the same perspective and may not have the same emergency perspective. And so I think you have to be very careful. And that's why you need to go in. And even if it takes two minutes, go and see the patient. And then the final thing that I wanted to bring up was this notion of scope of practice and what an MLP should or shouldn't be doing. The onus is not on the MLP to decide what can I be doing, what should I be telling the physician shouldn't be afraid to tell one physician about a case and not another the onus is on the physician in the department that scope of practice for an MLP is their scope of practice and what they feel comfortable given an individual PAs experience and training and so the onus is on the physician to know each of the MLPs under their service and you have to tailor what you'll let each one do. You can't just let them go and say you just go see these patients and I'll sign off on them or not depending on what the policy of the hospital is.
1: Well Jed, how does the plaintiff attorney decide whether they're going to name just a physician assistant, just the physician, or both when they're bringing about a legal action. Simple question. It's where the money is. <laughs> exactly. No,
2: Greg is right. Greg's right. And it depends on kind of the practice. I mean, in this case, this physician assistant, I think that any jury would say, okay, this guy says he discusses this case or his case is every single time. And for a physician to go in and say, well, I don't remember him discussing this with me. It just doesn't bode well for the physician. If the physician is signing off on a chart before that patient leaves, ultimately the physician's
0: responsible. By the way, John, you're still the expert here on what PAs write on their charts. Most of the PAs I know always document Dr. Henry brought to the bedside case reviewed. Are you still
3: doing that? I have I think, as I recall, there are three choices on our electronic charting, and I always document that the patient was discussed with the physician, but there is not a specific thing saying that they were brought to the bedside.
0: You know what? I think that that's wrong. I think that just for the defense of the doctor, it ought to be charted somewhere that he actually saw the case. But they don't want to see the case.
4: They don't want to see the case, Uh, Greg. That's the whole point here.
0: Well, I understand that, but at least when you do see the cases, we ought to know that you've seen the case, and we basically train our mid-levels to put that on the chart. Dr. Henry brought to the bedside, saw the case, saw the lab work, and at the end of this, you're going to have to explain to me how somebody with one-sided weakness and paresthesias and a hemoglobin of seven
1: was considered to be a normal case, but another issue, obviously. Well, Greg and Jen, I would guess that most physicians are not aware of their specific state requirements, and it's confusing because it varies between state, and it obviously changes, too. So here is two sentences. Question, doctor, are you familiar with the provisions of your state administrative code as to what duties of the backup supervising physician are? And the answer was, no, sir, I'm not aware of that. So Greg and Jen, first of all, do you think most physicians know their state laws? And second of all, how important is that for us to know those? Um, They know nothing about it. They don't.
2: I agree. They don't know. And more importantly, the state law is the minimum standard. It's really the hospital policy. And it doesn't matter if you don't know it or not, you're responsible for knowing it by law.
0: Yeah. By the way, I heard a very interesting series of questions in a depth where the plaintiff's counsel, and it was a stroke depth, plaintiff's counsel said, Dr. X, if it was your brother who had these symptoms... I don't care what your standard is, your rule is, would you be happy with the PA seeing the case and the doctor not seeing the case? And he said, in the depth, under oath, no, I wouldn't. It's one of those things that if you needed anything else to decide to settle this case, that took care of it.
4: Well, this is a very slippery slope, though, because Mike mentioned parameters whereby a mid-level would not necessarily need to see a person. And one of the things Mike said was, when there was diagnostic certainty, And that's diagnostic certainty on whose point of view? If it's the diagnostic certainty is on the part of the mid-level, well, maybe that's fine with some kind of minor orthopedic kind of thing. But now that you have this facial problem, it's sinusitis, is it really just sinusitis? Is it more than that kind of thing? So it's really difficult to say, I'm quite certain of the diagnosis, but you may be wrong.
0: We can all be wrong. The question is, when the patient paid, for a service or if the patient didn't pay its medicare or it's medicaid or it's blue cross somebody paid for a service what do we think that service ought to be in a certain situation i don't mean somebody who has their sutures removed and has no sign of infection okay we will give you that one but if you think you can come up with a simple list of diseases that the doctor shouldn't shouldn't see that's wrong Because I got plenty of cases where they said, well, we send our headaches to the urgent care. We send our low back pains to the urgent care. You know what? All of those can be a serious disease. And maybe people deserve to have a doc's input. That's all I'm saying.
1: Well, something interesting about this case is in writing this thing up, I actually spoke with a guy who actually has been on MRAP bounce back programs, Rich Milligan several times, medical malpractice defense attorney for over 30 years. And I asked him from a purely legal sense, how does the physician respond when he has signed the chart, but he doesn't remember the patient? And he came up with some very different responses to how this physician did, but ultimately said the doctor needs to take responsibility for what occurred in the emergency department. And I think that asking a question at this point in time with this case, that's one of the pieces of advice we could give to this doctor. But the better thing would have been before the patient actually left the emergency department. So I'm just gonna read one last, very brief part of the deposition here. And I think hopefully it'll give a bit of thought as to which patients that a physician should get more or less involved with. So the question is, do you wish, as you sit here today, the physician assistant, Scott Davis had discussed this case with you? Do you wish he had said, Dr. Jones, I've got a patient with transient neurologic symptoms, a platelet count over a million. As you sit here today, do you wish he had told you that? Answer, as I said, Scott Davidson is a licensed physician assistant and follows hospital policy and procedure. Question, well, let's play it out. What if? What if he had? As I said, sir, I would have gone, seen the patient, and examined the patient, and taken a history, then formulated an opinion as to diagnosis and management the plaintiff's attorney says i've got all day i can sit here all day i just want an answer to this question and finally the physician did admit that if the physician assistant had brought the patient to him he would have managed things differently so i think that that's a nice seg into our question that i'll have for the whole panel settle or go to trial here we have just some selected deposition what should the Defense attorney, advise this physician. And we can start with Rick. Where is your thought? Should they go to trial, knowing that oftentimes trials end up being decided for the defense physicians, or should they decide to settle this case?
4: Well, Mike, you know that every time you ask me this question, <laughs> I always say the same thing. And I say, the guy screwed up and pay up.
1: Well, Rick, you know, it's funny because I think you will never be on jury duty for a medical <laughs> malpractice case. Greg, what are your thoughts? Settle or go to trial? Well, I've settled a lot of cases in my time, and I've
0: been president of two insurance companies. Each case is different because of the facts and how the patient is, but I would think that a settlement here within the confines of the policy limits of this doctor and the mid-level provider would be a reasonable thing at this moment in time. By the way, as I'm looking at this case, the movie Precious, keeps coming up in my mind. Exactly. Have you all seen that, movie? Yep, yep. that? That's exactly what we're trying here is the precious patient who is going to be, I think, sympathetic on the stand.
1: Well, her deposition, her spe- I read 100 pages of her deposition. Her speech was so slurred that the stenographer could barely understand enough to even transcribe what she was saying. I think she'd be a very sympathetic witness. John, as a physician assistant, you want to devote the next four years of your life to defending this case?
3: I always contend that my wife married me for my humility, but I'm going to step out of my total lack of humility box here amongst all these legal gurus and say, if you don't settle this case, you're going to get burned to the ground. There's no way you're
1: going to win. So settle up. So Jen, you were 10 years as a defense medical malpractice defense attorney. This case comes across your desk. What do you do?
2: Settle. (laughs) Especially, Especially having read the deposition of the physician, he does not come across as sympathetic and he looks like he's trying to avoid his responsibility. I would definitely settle this.
0: I don't want to use this call as a way to educate plaintiff's attorneys necessarily, but there are four cards here that you play in a row. Number one, this woman is black, isn't she? Is she is. Yes. Play the race card. Why not? White doctor, black woman, piece of crap. This is why she was treated like this. If you don't think... I can't give a closing argument that'll bring tears to your eyes. Right now, you're wrong. The second card is this lack of control between the PA and the doc. She was treated. She got less care than would somebody else because of who she was, not because of the disease that presented. Number three would be they totally missed the chief complaint of why she came in. And four there was no closure of the loop to make sure she would continue to get reasonable care. In fact, she even admits she didn't have the money to get the medication to treat her sinusitis as if she had sinusitis. So there's no evidence here that anybody cared about her and what the outcome is. What we try in courts in the United States is not the standard of care. It's the standard of caring, which was not met in this case.
1: And one other thing that really come out, I think, even though it doesn't speak to the care that was given on the initial ED visit, and I'd be interested to get Rick's thought on this, is this patient came back by squad, was placed in the waiting room, and she had a punitive weight that lasted almost three and a half hours before she was finally brought back with her stroke. Unit of weights by the nurses. What's your thoughts?
4: I think it's a great idea <laughs> uh, if you want to take care of poor people and make them wealthy people. I think that this is an ER out of control. There is no supervision. The idea of having a patient with the complaints that she did on the second visit put into the waiting room for three and a half hours, outrageous, outrageous. So I think that this is a slammed-on case. What I would be interested in is what are the take-home messages here because there are docs going to be listening to this. And, you know, we've had some conflicting statements with regards to, well, should they see everybody? No, it's not the standard of care that they see everybody. How do we draw the line between what patients should be seen and what not? John brought up, I think, the really important points that some doctors are really tough to work with in terms of their expectations. And 99% of the time, you're going to get away with it because most people don't have serious diseases. But the fact of the matter is, is that I can envision a lot more suits as this trend continues.
1: Well, I have a summary here that I wanted to just go through. It's pretty brief. Any final thoughts, John or Jen, before we sort of try to wrap things up here?
3: The one thing, and I think that this is really goes to the point of what makes or breaks my job, and that is the attitude of the physician and communication. And in a setting where the physician is not obligated by their standard of practice at that hospital to see the patient then it becomes the group mentality of how they approach their mid-level providers. And if the physician is willing to see my patient when I ask or is enthusiastic about reviewing the chart, asking me questions, and going in to see the patient, it helps tremendously. And then as far as mid-level providers go, they have to be humble. And the extent of my training when I came out of school was nothing near that of a physician. And as one of my friends said when I came out, you can't diagnose what you don't know. And I'll be the first to admit that with experience and time, I have more freedom to see different types of patients with higher level of acuity. But the truth is, I always want my physicians to be involved because I don't want to make mistakes and I want my patients to get good care. And it never hurts to have a physician involved and doesn't take any time off my back. But sometimes getting them to do that and good communication can be very difficult because the nature of emergency medicine is very difficult. It's very high paced and it works against that.
4: John, you sound like you've been put into a bad position. And I would ask, and I'm not quite sure I want to know the answer to this question. If you had your druthers, Would it be a policy that you would like to see put in place that a physician sees every patient, even if it's it's, hi, how are you, out the door kind of thing? Would you feel more comfortable if that was the policy so that it was not the discretion of the doctor to determine which cases they would see based on their mood or kind of a cowboy they are or the like?
3: Boy, that's a really difficult question to answer because the problem is if that becomes the standard, then physicians are going to, at least in large part, really get kinda cranky about going to see the lower acuity patients. I would have no problem with the policy as long as it didn't really kind of come back and why do I have you here if I have to see everybody?
4: No, I understand. By the way,
0: we haven't answered this question today as we're going through this, but if you don't think that this isn't something we have to talk about, believe me it is. I'll be going to Washington DC in May. We're going to meet with people from CMS. We're going to talk to a lot of folks these questions are on the table, guys, so don't sort of pretend like it's not you and you don't have to be a part of it. Everybody who's listening to us today is a part of this question.
4: Well, you know, one of my concerns is that mid-levels may take offense by a policy that says every patient will be seen by the physician, because ultimately they are responsible for these cases, whether they like it or not. And I have no understanding of how signing a bunch of charts at the end of the shift of patient unit C means anything. You are already, in fact, responsible for those cases. You may not like to acknowledge it, but you are. And so I think that I'm concerned about being overly conservative about this and that I would be viewed by mid-levels as something like, you know, an anachronism. But the fact is, I think that this is something that really ought to be considered. I see them put in a very bad position or a very tough position, depending on the physicians that they're working with. And it's not fair.
0: Rick, in all fairness, the main focus of the practice of medicine is not the providers, it's the patient's. And we should not sacrifice patients on the altar of mid-level testing. This just isn't right. Whether they're upset or not upset, that's not the issue. Ask the patients. Do you want this kind of care or that kind of care? Well,
4: that's misleading, Greg, because all of the surveys that I'm aware of, basically mid-levels are accepted more than physicians are with regards to patient satisfaction, those kinds of things. I understand that. They're not complaining.
0: Different question, Rick. And that is, it's not whether they're nicer to the patients. In fact, there's a very good study from the University of Nebraska that said, if you had to wait another 30 minutes to see the doctor, or you can see the PA right now, which one would you see? Overwhelmingly, they said, I'd see a PA. So that isn't the issue. The question is a, more of a scientific one. What do we think
1: is reasonable care at this moment in time in America? Jen, do you have some closing thoughts on things? And I'll give a summary at the end here.
2: Just really quick, I wanted to kind of talk about the signing of the chart. And the whole purpose of the signing of the chart is to ensure quality control by law. And so if you're signing the chart, you have to go through the chart and make sure that there's quality control and that the patient has been treated to the standard of care. And I agree with Greg that I don't think anyone could argue that standard of care was met in this case. But what's the standard of caring? And if you're a physician in charge of a department – standard of caring is that you ensure that every patient is being treated to the best of your ability and your PA's ability and it is incumbent upon you to know what their skills and training are and to tailor the level of autonomy to that.
1: So to summarize, This case uncovers some uncomfortable interactions, whether it's a physician handover of a patient from one physician to another or a physician and an MLP working together. When there are two providers caring for a patient, one person has to be ultimately responsible and has to be recognized as such. So in this specific case, I think it's safe to say that if the attending could have seen the outcome in a crystal ball... Of course, he'd have taken more ownership of the patient. If the PA had recognized that he was left with diagnostic uncertainty, which exceeded his training or comfort level, he would ask for help. So what are a few lessons that we can take away from the case? I think the first one is prior to the patients presenting, we need to have a clear delineation of responsibility between the physician and the MLP. Number two, when should an MLP consult with a doctor? And it's the same as when a physician should consult with a specialist. And those are patients, number one, when there's difficulty obtaining a reliable history or inability to do such as occurred in this case. If there's some diagnostic uncertainty at the completion of the evaluation, if either side anticipates, in short, that they'd worry about this patient on the drive home, those are the patients that we need to have extra eyes seeing that patient. So I think what we've done here is we have asked the question, who has responsibility? And hopefully... We'll initiate some further discussion and some further refinement of that so that when the patient presents, as someone said previously, it's about the patient. It's about taking good care of the patient and who's not, not who's the cowboy, who has responsibility to do these things or other. It's how can we best take care of these patients?
4: Well, Jen, I would ask you, isn't it clear who has responsibility for these cases? And don't we just need to make it clearer to physicians that no matter what happens on your watch, if you let that patient go out and there was a problem, you are responsible for this case and not get into something about, well, we're not really sure who's responsible, that kind of thing. I think that that's not the case. I think the physicians are responsible and I think they need to know it.
2: Well, whether they ought to be responsible or not, I don't think is clear right now. I agree that if there's a patient in your department, you sign that chart before they leave, you are responsible as the physician, but that's not always how it works. The rules are just that a supervising physician be available, and it may be by phone, and it just means available, not necessarily see the patient. And so, you know, let's say that you sign that chart one week later. Are you responsible for the care that happened at that time? Well, legally, I'm not sure that you are. I think that the PA acting in their scope of practice is. But I think that once you sign that chart before they leave or once that patient is presented to you, I think that you're responsible.
4: Well, then in that case, we would advise people don't sign charts on the day of your (laughs) shift and sign them the next day. Yeah.
2: Well, Uh, exactly. That's the problem.
0: Yeah, this is not going in the right directions. The signing of the chart is not guaranteeing quality. What it's really doing is guaranteeing payment. And that's a different issue here. By the way, if the PA is employed by the doctor's group, which a lot of them are, then they just sue the group, and they don't care whether it's the PA or the doc. They're going after the limits on that policy, and they'd love to see the doctor and the PA fight it out in court as to who's responsible. If I was the plaintiff's counsel, I'd stage that fight.
1: Let me do this. The very brief version is the case did not go to trial, but was settled for an extremely large sum enough to provide lifelong care of the patient, certainly in the millions. Yeah, that was pretty predictable in this case.
4: So even I'm going to be right every once in a while. (laughs) You know, know, a broken
0: watch is right twice a day. That's right.
2: I think that Greg is exactly right, that the lesson of this case is that there really aren't a lot of standards or controls in MLP care right now. And about 8% of the critical patients in emergency rooms are being seen by MLPs. And so I think that this is something that warrants discussion and national policy because I think that we have fought for a long time for our specialty as being unique in medicine and the standard ought to be the same for every patient who goes into the emergency department.
0: Okay, let's move on to an update on something we've been following on Risk Management Monthly and that is a case which if you haven't heard us talk about it before, you will hear and that's Jellic versus Stockson. That's a case in Michigan that has gone to the Michigan Court of Appeals and is now going to the Michigan Supreme Court. And that has to do with one thing. Do the guidelines promulgated by a professional society constitute by and in of themselves the standard of care? This case is huge. It's going to have huge ramifications around the country. All I can tell you is right now the appellate court has said... Yes, they can be used and inflicted against the defending doctor for the standard of care. We've challenged this, and it's going to the Michigan Supreme Court. And all I can say is I hope we get a reversal there because this is an uncomfortable case.
4: Well, we can pick up this topic in a future recording because I think it's really important. It's growing, <laughs> it's growing in importance, and it's a real trap for physicians.
0: There is a strange idea going around in the land that you have to be under age of 18 to have a testicular torsion. Let me just tell you that right now, there is a decision on a case in Massachusetts, 550000 bucks were given. A 25-year-old entered the emergency department with pain in his testicle, and what do you think they diagnosed it as a sexually active 25-year-old, Rick?
4: epididymitis.
0: Epididymitis, yeah. No, not everybody with pain in their testicle is having sex, has epididymitis. Patient seen by the PA and went home, comes back with a dead testicle, and and this went for $550,000. And by the way, it was a more complex case as we get into all the finer points of this because it had to do with the patient coming back and what did the ultrasound show, all that kind of stuff. But the take-home message is, If it's a painful testicle, I'd refer that to urology and let them ask you the right set of questions. And don't get this idea that if they're above the age of 20 or 25, it can't be a torsion of the testicle because 10% of testicular torsions are diagnosed in people above the age of 21.
4: Did a PA or NP see this person exclusively? initially?
0: Yes, initially, exclusively.
4: Okay. You know, I don't understand why there would ever be a $550,000 award for testicular torsion. I mean, I would only pay once it was proven that this person could not have a kid. And that's when I would pay. So it would be a contingent payment.
0: A bilateral testicular torsion. <laughs> knowing how my kids turned out, I'd give them money. <laughs>
4: the other thing is, I don't know whether you saw this or not, but the FDA just approved a testicular implants. And you can get them the size of a chicken egg if you want to, so that there is issue about well, this guy only has one testicle, and people will see him in the locker room, and it's going to be embarrassing. Not anymore.
0: The size of chicken eggs. I guess at my place we'd call those those are the small ones. Okay, go ahead.
1: (laughs) Great, great. Well, I think one of the medical parts of this of that story, Greg, is that there's certain things. I'm no cookbook guy, but there's certain things that probably should be cookbooked. And if it's a pregnant patient with vaginal bleeding and abdominal pain or a patient with leg pain, we're looking for a DVT. And probably most cases of unilateral testicular pain probably should be scanned looking for torsion.
0: Right. Or just call urology. The bottom line is I saw a guy my last year of practice, 24 years old, weightlifter, sudden pain, and I used a handheld Doppler. No pulse in that testicle, a pulse in the other. You know what? I just called the urologist and said, you got to go on towards this guy. He said, yeah, that sounds like it. I'm coming in. And he said, by the way, on the way in, get a scan. <laughs> and I said, you're going to do it anyway. He says, yeah, but we just kind of like to have that in the chart. Yeah, well. You just know. get a CBC. Get a CBC.
4: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Greg, you want to do one more
0: I'd like to talk about one case which I know nobody's going to like. And this is failure to transmit a positive strep result to an emergency room and contact the child's parents. This is a $1.7 million Georgia decision because the child developed rheumatic fever. And the complaint was they did a strep test in the department, negative. Then they did a culture The culture comes back two days later, positive, and nobody does anything with it. So it sits in the chart. Now, whose responsibility this is? There was a fight about who's going to do this, who's going to do that. But this is a case that we all ought to look at. And remember, if you're going to ask a question, do a test, somebody has got to be responsible for taking care of that test result when it comes back. This is the largest verdict I've ever seen. This is a Georgia verdict, $1.7 million on a kid who has rheumatic
4: fever. Wow, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Talk about bad luck.
0: Well, what I'm telling you, Rick, is you and I both know we haven't seen a case of rheumatic fever for years. It's so rare as to be unbelievable, but in this case... This is the one where they didn't call the parents.
1: Well, you know, the CDC and their guidelines, which I think were partially co-written by Jerry Hoffman, specifically state for adults that if you have a negative rapid test not to do a culture, and our lab was completely unaware of that, and we stopped the practice of doing a culture on all the negative rapids. They estimated that the number needed to test, well, the cost of the number needed to test for culture with a negative rapid test but something like $30 million to diagnose one case of rheumatic fever. So our ER does not do that in adults. Now, in kids, it's still protocol to do that. But I think that that's one of those basic things. Boy, your hospital has to have a policy on following up an abnormal lab results that come back after the physician leaves their shift.
0: By the way, I'm against your policy. If you have a 7-year-old, as this one is, who has a fever, pus on the tonsils, and large nodes... If you look at the Centaur criteria, that kid has what? Strep throat. Yeah. 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 Better than 50%. I just go ahead and treat them. Right. Right.
4: Although yeah, there yeah. is the American Academy of Pediatrics has this kind of nutty policy or recommendation or guideline that says people who have negative strep tests should automatically be cultured, which I think is, as reflected by your comment, Mike, utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. That's Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's do wine of the month.
0: Ah. Wine of the month. Well, in celebration of getting back from Israel, I'm going to say that the Israeli wine industry, which was nothing 20 years ago, has come on strong, and they have, of course, made the desert bloom, and not just with crops, but with very decent grapes. I was up to the Golan Heights, and the Golan Heights winery should be put on your list of things to try. We did one of their Chenet Blancs. In fact, we had a bottle of it at Dala's restaurant in Tel Aviv, And it was magnificent. Now, exactly how you order a bottle of this from the United States, I'm not sure. But if you're in Israel, it is the Golan Heights Winery Chine Blanc, one of my favorites. There
4: you go. Yeah, it's not at Costco yet, Greg. (laughs) It's not at Costco. (laughs) And
0: unfortunately, when you drink it, you have to wear a flak jacket. But other than that, it's just fine. All right. Well, this is the April issue of Risk Management Monthly. We're closing this up. And I want to take this opportunity to thank Mike Weinstock. and we're kind of hoping, Mike, that you'll be coming back to visit us more and more on Risk Management Monthly. And we want like to—yes, to. we'd like to have you back. And we'd like to thank both John and Jennifer for participating. This is the largest cast we've ever had—a cast of thousands. This is essentially Ben Hur of Risk Management Monthly, but mm-hmm. it's gone very well. So, from both Rick and Greg, bye-bye. We'll catch you on our next the may issue which as you remember is the year-end review
4: bye-bye thank you all see you